So the earliest writings in the Bible are the first five books, and these are the five books of Moses. And they were written at the end of the 15th century BC. And because they're the earliest writing in the Bible, they're often targeted by skeptics who are saying that they're largely mythology. So in uh, the books of Moses, one of them, the book of Numbers, Moses talks about a seer named Balaam, son of Beor. And uh, at this time, the Israelites are camped out in the Jordan Valley on the plains of Moab. Balak, king of Moab, sends messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, to summon him to come and to put a curse on this people Israel. And Balaam comes, and uh, as he goes to speak a curse on Israel, a blessing comes out instead because the Lord is speaking through him. So we have Balaam, son of Beor, this seer in the Bible. Excavations took place here at Deir Allah in the 1960s, and they were directed by H.J. Franken. And their most significant discovery here came in 1967. They were digging up here at the Acropolis of the site, and they found the remains of a monumental building which they interpreted to be a temple. And the walls of this temple had collapsed in, and as they were excavating down through these collapsed walls, they noticed uh, pieces of plaster that came from the inside of the wall, and they noticed that on some of these fragments of plaster, there was writing in black and red ink. And so they did the best they could to get these different uh, pieces of plaster that had writing on them and piece them back together. And the inscription that they preserved is one of the feature displays at the National Museum of Jordan in Amman today. So in general, this inscription is very fragmentary, but the first line of it is very clear. And when translated reads, the sayings of Balaam, son of Beor, the man who was a seer. So compare that, for example, to Numbers 24.3 that says, and he spoke his message, the prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. So the same person, the same Zeer that is talked about in the Bible is also now found independently of the Bible through archeology, span through the excavations in this site, found an inscription independent of the Bible. So what does this mean? It means that the places and the events and the people that the Bible is talking about are real and that the truth claims of the Bible are not based on mythology, but on history. That's a little bit of an odd way for us to start our sermon this morning. As a matter of fact, we've never done such. This is uh, Joel uh, Kramer. And Joel is on faculty at Shepherd's Theological Seminary as an uh, archaeologist and teacher. And uh, maybe some of you will know that next week the provost and dean of Shepherd's Seminary will be here and he'll be speaking the next uh, sermon in this message. And if you stick around and we get to take some trips to Israel like we assume we will, it's highly likely you'll have an opportunity to meet Joel. Joel hosts a wonderful YouTube channel and I suggest that you write it down. It's called Expedition Bible. Uh, you should uh, subscribe to it. His videos are always fascinating. They highlight 
the archaeology that is being dug up and studied uh, that uh, specifically support the biblical history. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, you are joining us in a succession of sermons that is preparing our church, Capital City Church, for a multi-year preaching series through the life and ministry of Christ. The Lord willing, we'll be starting that series December 25th. It lands on the Lord's Day. Well, if you will, turn with me. We've been working our way through beginnings, that is Genesis, and we spent some time last week in Exodus. We are going to skip over Leviticus and land in the fourth book of Moses, the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. You can go to chapter 22 through 24. That's where we'll be spending our time. Just hang in there with me. I'll do my best to to uh, help you to get to those verses that we are as uh, going to study. Uh, we are flying, as you can tell, over the books of Moses, not because there is nothing to learn from them, uh, but rather because we are on a mission to familiarize ourselves with the Old Testament and how it foresees the coming of a king who will rule in righteousness and justice. We've seen so far in Genesis that this king is spoken of as a promised child to Adam, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, who was renamed Israel. At the end of Genesis, we saw a prophecy through Israel that the child would be a king and that that king would come from one of the sons of Israel, whose name was, you remember, this is where you respond, Judah. You should get that down. Write that down in your mind, heart, and your Bibles. Genesis chapter 4. One of Israel's sons, Judah, is where the king will come from. Last week we noted that like Yahweh had saved the 70 people of Israel through the leader Joseph 400 years later, he saved Israel, an exceedingly mighty nation. We said is around 2.5 million people through a leader named Moses. All right, you guys are failing. We're going to have to start this whole series all over. As he is beginning, right, to pull them out of uh, a nation called Egypt and make them into a holy nation. We haven't spent a lot of time. There's just three messages in this subseries called A Holy Nation, but it's good for you to know that this is what God is doing. He is taking a tribe and he is turning them into a nation. Exodus and Numbers is kind of this in-between time that is happening before they become so. Any nation needs borders, does it not? And they do not have borders. So God has set himself up as the king. He is traveling with them, but they have yet to come into that bordered nation, which will be a holy nation. We ended last week by briefly going over the final plague of tin that Yahweh used to bring Egypt to its knees. That plague, the killing of the firstborn, taught Israel that obedience to Yahweh caused blessing or the plague to pass over them, remember. The ten plagues identified Yahweh as the one true and sovereign God over the gods of Egypt. Today we'll continue to see how the Old Testament foresees a coming of a king in the book of Numbers. We're going to hop way ahead into it, into chapter 22 through 24. It is a fascinating uh, book in your Old Testament. I hope that you read it at least once a year. It always surprises me the number of things that we can learn from it and how much the narrative of Israel is built 
through this time in the book of Numbers. Pastor and Wearsby noted that the spiritual lesson that we can take away from the book of Numbers is that God honors faith and punishes unbelief. That God honors faith and punishes unbelief. Between last week in Exodus and this week, 40 years has transpired. Yahweh delivered Israel's 12 tribes from Egypt to bring them into the land that he, would, uh, that he un- unconditionally promised Abraham. Since last week, and by the time we get to Numbers chapters 22 and 24, Israel has been miraculously delivered from Egypt, the book of Exodus. They have been given a constitution or laws for their new land and governors called Levites to apply those laws, all found in the book of Leviticus. At this juncture in Israel's journey, Yahweh, God is the king over the nation. He is sitting on his throne, called what? The Ark of the Covenant. He is sitting on his throne. The nation is coming to the end of their 40-year punishment for their unbelief and disobedience, and a census has been taken. And the number of Israel's fighting men has been identified as 601,730 men. It's a pretty big army, wouldn't you say? The fighting men, by this time, when we arrive at chapter 22 of Numbers, where I hope you have made your way by now, the fighting men of Israel have already defeated two kings on their way to the promised land. And this is where we pick up the narrative. Thank you for bearing with me through an odd and longer Introduction. Look with me, will you, at Numbers chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Moses recorded this. Then the sons of Israel journeyed, and they camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan, opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people. For they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now, this horde, (laughs) I love that translation, this horde, right? This massive amount of people, this, this large and numerous nation will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. So, verse 5, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they too They are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So now I'm uh, hoping that you're putting together the video that we showed you there of Balaam, son of Beor, and how uh, he's not just some mythical figure that is somewhere in the Old Testament that we hope uh, really existed, and that we can look to our Old Testaments and we can understand that it is the nature of our Old Testament to record the history, and it is meant for us to be understood as recorded 
history, not through some kind of weird genre of mysticism or some weird hermeneutic that replaces uh, um, one people with another people or whatever we want to do with it because it's prophecy. It is meant to be understood, and that is why it is so fun when we get to watch Joel over there in Jordan and Israel dig up the evidence that the Scripture says is true. Amen? In short, the king of Moab, as we enter into the text here, Balak, knows that he cannot win the battle. So he turns to the spiritual, hoping that Balaam would be able to conjure up a curse on Israel. However, just like Israel or Egypt's false gods could not deliver Egypt from Yahweh, every time Balaam attempts to curse Israel, Yahweh sovereignly speaks a blessing instead. Now, we won't get too much into this story, but you'll remember if you've studied numbers that Yahweh is not limited to using his people to speak. And there may be a lesson in that, or there is a lesson uh, for us in that, in that God is able to speak, and even out of the mouth of babes, right, truth can be revealed. And Balaam, you'll know, got a rough start into this juncture by not doing what he was uh, or what he was supposed to be doing, and ultimately his donkey, right, sees, an angel, sees the angel of the Lord and turns aside and hurts Balaam twice, and, and then finally he gets up, and he's mad, right, at the donkey, and the donkey opens his mouth and speaks to him. The point that we need to understand and learn and bring with us through this is that God can sovereignly use whoever he wills to reveal his will. Amen? So Balaam, as we'll see, is no friend of Israel, and God is going to use him to speak a blessing. Today we'll see Yahweh proclaiming through a false prophet, Balaam, that a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. Amen? In the first oracle, it's found, if you can flip over, if you've made your way to 22, you can flip over to chapter 23. It's found in verses 1 through 12. Balaam opens his mouth and says in verse 8 to Balak, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Beloved, it is important uh, to note that when Yahweh uses a person to verbally reveal his will, right, that that person is not speaking their own words. And this is the conundrum that Balaam has found himself in and that he has been hired to speak a curse, but all that he can speak is this blessing. And although we never get the details of how God, uh, Yahweh, begins to speak through people, we can get a little bit of a feel from one of my favorite texts uh, about how God uses a, a person to begin to speak his will. This one in particular is one of his prophets, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 20, uh, Jer Jeremiah is saying that he had become the laughing stock of Israel for saying what God had told him to mournfully say. Now, fast forward just really quick me, hold on to, to Jeremiah 20 there, and, and just grasp with me for a minute how God is going to use Jeremiah. Grasp with me for a second that Jeremiah is not overly happy about the fact that God is speaking through him. And if you're familiar at all with Jeremiah, you'll know that Babylon is mounting this war against Judah, right? And, and 
and they are they are they have they have uh, overcome or they have besieged the city and Jeremiah is going around and he is saying you're going to die and everybody's looking at him and they hate him and they're mocking him and they're making fun of him and they are no doubt there are false prophets in the mix saying don't you know that the promise was to Judah and Judah will have the kingdom and they will live forever yet Jeremiah is unable to say that what he says when he opens his mouth is with that which God has said, just like Balaam. Verse 9 says, But if I say, I will not remember him, that is Yahweh, or speak anymore to, in his name. So we can, we can, we can identify here, right, with, with Jeremiah in, in saying uh, that, man, all of this speaking of God's word is causing me a lot of consternation. And he is saying, uh, and he's saying and revealing to us that that he would like to not remember Yahweh or speak in his name anymore. But if he does this, he says, he goes on to say, then in my heart it becomes it, what? The word of God becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in. I can't do it. I cannot endure it. And where he does not want to speak, the judgment and the curses and the things that are going to come upon Judah... Out of his mouth comes the word of God. And it is a similar situation that Balaam finds himself in here. Beloved, when we hold our Bibles in our hands, we need to forever remind ourselves that we hold the words of God in our hands. Not the words of man who came up with some fancy way to describe what they thought God was doing, but God inspiring man and writing it down. Not our words, not Jeremiah's words, not Balaam's words, but yet it is God's word. Balaam then is hired to curse Israel by Balak, but he can only bless them. And after doing so, you can hop down there to verse 11 uh, through 12 in Numbers 23. And it says this, Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. He replied, that is Balaam, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Beloved, once again, this speaks of the miraculous nature of the words that are coming from Balaam's mouth. They're not his words. They are the words of Yahweh, amen? Unless we think Balaam is a fan of Israel, you can turn just a few pages to your right in the Word of God to chapter 31 where we can drop in on the narrative where the men of Moab, Midian, and Balaam have all been killed by Israel. However, Israel did not get out of this confrontation without loss because of disobedience to Yahweh. In verses 14 through 16 of Numbers 31, Moses is mad at the officers of the army because all the women and male children had not or they had been, excuse me, spared in the battle. Moses says in Numbers 31, 15 through 16, Have you, speaking to the officers, have you spared all the women? 16, verse, uh, verse 16, Behold, these caused, these women, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of who? Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. We can see that Balaam, even though we are just hopping into little parts of 
what he has got going on. He is somehow working with the king, Balak, and the Midianites, and, and he would love to see uh, his enemy destroyed mainly because he wants to be paid by Balak. He's moved some 350 miles to be here and to do this and to say a curse, but now he can't say the curse, and in the background, he's working to make his money. He's worked with Balak here, and in chapter 31 shows it. So we can see that. Balaam, he is no friend of Israel. He is counseling for their destruction behind the sins. If we uh, behind the scenes, if we flip back to Numbers 25, verses 1 through 4, I'll have it up here on the screen for you. Moses records that while Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. So here they are, they're sitting, they're not moving into the promised land yet, and now they begin to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited, verse 2, the people to the sacrifices of their gods. That's the daughters of Moab. And the people ate, and pay attention here, you might want to circle it in your Bible. If you've gone there, bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, that is, this idol, this false god. And Yahweh, the Lord, was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, and execute them. That is, those who had joined themselves to Baal Peor, the false god of the Moabite women. After executing them, Moses' brother Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, you'll remember, observed an Israelite and a Midianite woman. Everybody is around the tents. There is weeping, right? There is mourning. And here comes this guy with one of the women headed to his tent. And he walks on through, and Phinehas and the others see that he walks on through, and Phinehas, in his anger, uh, noticing that people had been dying and and all had been executed, grabs his spear, right? He follows them to the tent, and the imagery that we kind of pick out of the text is that he drives his spear through both of them, killing them both, killing them both, piercing them through. And in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 25, It says, because of that, the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. It stopped. Those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. So, beloved, why am I stopping and pausing here? I'm wanting you to recognize that Balaam is no friend of Israel. He is in the background doing whatever he can to make sure that they are destroyed. But when it comes to speaking a curse over him, Yahweh will not let that happen. Are you you tracking with me? Say amen. Or don't. Okay. You should have woke up, Bo. As I mentioned a little earlier, Pastor Wearsby said that the spiritual lesson we can learn from the book of Numbers is that God honors faith and punishes unbelief. In this narrative, Yahweh honored Phinehas' genuine faith by putting an end to a plague by which God was punishing Israel for their unbelief. For their unbelief. And that is the pattern we see in Numbers. That, and throughout, really, the remainder of your Old Testament is Israel in their unbelief, disobeying what God has put in his law, and God being faithful to punish them just like he said he would. Just like he said that he would. Verse 13 of Numbers 23, back to that. We'll spend the remainder of 
our time, uh, uh, in Numbers anyway, in, verse, in chapters 23 and 24, reveals that the king of Moab still hoped for Balaam to curse Israel. So they moved to another location where we find the second oracle in verses 18 through 34. By and large, the oracle reveals, and very quickly, that when God speaks, he keeps his word. When God speaks, he keeps his word. This is a familiar verse to us and sometimes quoted. In verse 23, verse 19 of the oracle, Yahweh says to Balak, king of Moab, through the false prophet, right, Balaam, God is not a man that he should lie, nor, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Beloved, this truth that Yahweh is speaking through this false prophet points to the foundation of Yahweh's character. That is, he is holy. Yahweh is immutable. He does not change. Going back and and, and looking at that verse in 19, he is not the son of man that he should repent. God is not kind of wandering around and like I am always doing, being sanctified into my thinking process and trying to figure out what is truth and what is not truth and that didn't work and I shouldn't have sinned there and that hurt. God is not like that. He does not need to repent. He is holy. He is set apart. He is immutable. He does not change. He is all good all the time. He is not tempted to be evil. He can't be evil. He is light in all the time. Light. He is not like us. He doesn't change his mind about Israel because something didn't go the way he thought. He is not surprised by it. He is not locked up in time. What he has said, he will make do on. Amen? The Lord, Yahweh, says of himself that he will not let the guilty go unpunished and that he extends mercy or forgiveness to all who will cry out for it. It is this truth about Yahweh that Satan understands, does he not? When God says, don't eat the fruit, or you will surely die, Satan understands Yahweh is not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his mind. He loves Adam and Eve. He sees them as the crown of their creation. He, he understands that they are to rule and to reign with them. But he has given them a word and he is not going to change his mind. Eat that fruit and you are going to die. He is not a liar. He doesn't have the capacity to lie. There's no darkness or evil in God at all. So beloved, Satan understands that if he can get God's people, listen here, and find ourselves in this a little bit, if he can get God's people to believe what God has not said, God will, by his very nature, pour out his wrath on you. Are you tracking with me? If Satan can tempt you and pull you out and get you to do what God has not said, it's not Satan punishing you. It is the punishment of Yahweh who exists. He will not relent. He will not turn. From his way, Paul would tell the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that we are not unaware of Satan's devices. This is how he works. 
He is powerful only in that if he can get you to believe the lie, the lie about your life, the lie about your children, the lie about your, your, your intimate relationships, the lie, whatever does not align with that which God has said. If he can get you to lie or, or buy into that idea, he's won because God is just and he is going to judge justly. He has no power in himself. That's what he does here through Balaam. So therefore, Balak and Balaam, like Satan, in the Garden of Eden, take counsel together, and they come up with a way to deceive God's people. They know that the blessing is coming forth. They know what God is saying of Israel and that they're blessed. But if they can get Israel to disobey God, Yahweh himself will fight against Israel. And why? Because he is just and holy. So, so Balak and Balaam, they... they come up with this plan to trick Israel into having intimate relationships, right, with the women of Midian, knowing that God in his jealous anger would punish his own people for worshiping the idols. In Exodus, chapter 34, I'll have it up here on the screen for you. Verses 12 through 16. Yahweh warned Israel about this before they get to this time, 40 years, some 40 years later moving and getting ready to go into the land. Yahweh speaks this to them and says this, verse 12, Watch yourself, that's Israel, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, into which you are going. Or it will, highlighted, right, become a snare in your midst. Now pause on that text for just a second. Sounds similar. Don't eat of this fruit lest you die. Don't, right? Make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land or it will be a snare in your midst. The further we get away, and you can leave that up uh, for just a second. I'll get back to the text in a moment. Um, Isabella, thank you. Um, the further we get away from Western ideas, the more difficult it is sometimes for us to understand what a snare is. And as I was reading this, I just paused for a moment to think about what is a snare and what is that trap. And if you're not familiar with it, what it is, a snare will be a, a very fine line that's unbreakable, very, very difficult to break. It's oftentimes built out of uh, a cable that has just thousands of pounds of tension. And what the trapper will do is he'll set the snare up and, and hide it with little bushes and stuff. And then, and then what he'll do is he'll take the bait and he'll put it just beyond the snare. And so that animal will come along and they'll smell or see that bait sitting through this little hole in, the thing, in, the, in, in this hidden snare and they begin to stick their heads and it goes through the snare because the snare is big enough initially. But what that animal does not know, one, is that the snare is sitting there, and two, the snare is designed that as he begins to, that animal begins to pull and get closer and closer to that thing which has tempted him in, that bait, that snare begins to get tighter and tighter and tighter, and it's a one-way device. It only gets tighter. It never releases. Are you tracking with me? Israel, don't make a covenant with the people that are in the land. It will trap you. It will become a snare to you. You will not 
Get delivered from that thing. It will bring you down. Verse 13, Isabella, thank you. But rather you are to tear down their altars. On the opposite of joining with them, tear down the altars, tear down their false gods, smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god for the Lord, Yahweh, right? Whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, I want us to pause and and put this back into what we've been learning. Yahweh himself is is the snare. Are you tracking with me? (laughs) He is the device that's going to punish Israel. Satan is out there doing what he always does, hanging the bait, telling everybody, come on through, knowing that this snare is sitting there, and if they go through it, if they are tempted by it, if they believe in it, if they go after it, Yahweh himself will begin to fight against his own people. Are you tracking? Otherwise, you might, verse 15, make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And you, that is Israel, might take some of, the, of, of his, that's the land's daughters, for your sons, and his, the land's daughters, right, might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. The friends, Balak and Balaam, cannot beat Israel in battle, so they use the character of the holy God like a snare. They set up the bait, that is some seductive women from Midian, to get Israel to worship a false god. Israel disobeys and takes the bait, tightening up the snare of God's jealous wrath, and God begins to punish the disobedience with a plague. Now, we understand Balaam is not on Israel's side. He's the hand of Satan. We can learn through Balaam's second oracle that if God has spoken it, it will come to pass. And since Satan's scheme is known, we can today know that he will be forever tempting us to disobey God. He'll be forever tempting us to look at something you shouldn't look at, to do something you shouldn't do. And I don't understand the dynamic that goes on in the, in the text of Scripture, but what we know is that God very clearly calls out certain lifestyles and types of sin that uh, regardless if you think you have been saved by grace or not, if you main, maintain in those lifestyles, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. There is a dynamic that we to be like Phineas who sees the sin, understands what it's going to cause in in the life of the nation, and does everything he can to deliver the nation. But Jesus is going to tell the person who is struggling with lust, right? Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. It is better to lose one of the members of your body than to go into hell with all of them. There is a violence, there is a need that we interact, amen? This brings us to the 24th chapter and the third and fourth oracles of Balaam. 
A quick view of all four oracles reveals the progression of God's present blessing on Israel as the dust of the earth in Oracle 1 to Oracle number 4, which speaks of a time that is still yet to come. In between is 2 and 3, and 3 is a mixture of near and far prophecy partially fulfilled in the conquest of Canaan and by Joshua and by David. Its message, this oracle, starts out by seeing Israel as already enjoying and being fruitful in the promised land. They're not there yet, right? They've got to cross over the Jordan. They've got to enter in. But yet, Balaam begins to see into the future, and he sees them as already blessed. And he says in verse 5, how fair are your tents? 24, Numbers 24, verse 5. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the water. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters. If you ever get the time and the privilege to go to Israel, you'll find that in some ways, some, it is much like this part of our country. There is not a lot of water. And uh, I'll never forget the first time that I traveled down south. I traveled with a friend of mine, Pastor John Welch, um, who was from Louisiana. And we had gone down there. He was uh, going to do some preaching, and then we were going to do some duck hunting, uh, specifically for wood ducks, if you've ever, uh, if you know what those are. But anyway, as we got into that part of the country, there's so much water, there's so much marsh, there's just people growing stuff everywhere. Uh, life is everywhere. Ducks and and, and waterfowl and, and deer and everything, they're just everywhere. So unlike what I was used to being from this part of the country where, listen, man, if there is not a river, there is nothing alive, really, right? Except for ants, right? There's just not much living. And this is the idea that is being portrayed here in, in, in uh, Israel. It is, it is a land that, is, that needs water. And you can very clearly see where the water is. And where the water isn't, and Balaam, as he is speaking, he is speaking five times in these couple verses here of water and how fair your tents, Jacob, how are your dwellings, O Israel, right? Valleys that stretch out like gardens beside the river, right? Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars, right? Strong beside the water with all the water they would ever need. Verse 7, water will flow from his buckets and his seed will be by many waters. You might highlight that word seed, is that something we are following through our Old Testaments. One commentator noted the irony in the fact that while the many waters of the Nile were being used by Pharaoh to destroy the seed of Israel, God would now establish the seed of Israel by many waters. By many waters. And notice now the shift from the plurality of Israel and their abundant health to the singularity of Israel's king. The singularity of Israel's king. It comes in the second half of verse 7. It says, And his, that is Israel's king, singular, right? Shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Most likely here that Agag is a 
his uh, title, kind of like we would title the Pharaoh or, um, or the kings of the Amalekites, who were a mighty nation. And just like Yahweh would be king over those pharaohs, he, this king will be king over Agag, the, those Amalekite countries. And his kingdom, listen here, shall be exalted. It will be lifted up, right? It will be over. David, the future king of Israel, could be in view here, but as we read, the vision seems to move beyond David to the promised child of Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth through the tribe of Judah. Trying to help you out there. Verse 8 continues. God brings him, that's the king, out of Egypt. He, God, is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. Now, here comes some familiar language from a couple of weeks ago. He couches. This is the king, right? He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him? Here's the idea. This is a fierce king. Don't rouse the lion. Just let him stay sleeping. Remember, this language comes right straight out of Genesis 49, in whom where we saw the king would come from Judah. I'll have it up here on the screen, but remember Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, says Judah, in this blessing, getting spoken to all 12 of Israel's sons, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You can begin to pick up, right, the rulership already. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. The rest of your 11 brothers will bow down to you. Why? Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. Here's our language. The same exact language we're seeing here come out of the mouth of Balaam. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah. Notice now, beloved, and let's remember, Balaam does not have the book of Genesis, right, in his hand. Balaam is not quoting something he has read. God is speaking through him, and what God says is going to happen. That's what we're seeing in this text. God reaffirms in verse 9 that he had what he had already said through Israel in Genesis 49, that Uh, He couches this king. He lies down as a lion. He's ready to take over, right? The king of the beasts. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Beloved, the Old Testament solidifies that there is a Messiah, a king who, uh, who is fierce in battle, and he will subdue the nations. And last I checked, he has not done that yet. He has not done that yet. After saying, blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. Balak, the king of Moab, cannot stand it anymore. He is hearing these blesses and curse, uh, rather than curses. And in verse 10 of chapter 24, it says, Then Balak's anger turned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. However, and you'll know if you've read this, 
the Lord is not done describing the future king of Israel in verse in chapter 24, verse 7 through 9, 17 through 19. Yahweh reveals through this false prophet and says this, I see him. <laughs> right? Balak's gone. He's had enough. <laughs> but out of his mouth, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Star in the ancient Near East language is, is the uh, language that would use of a king. I, a king shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. The scepter is the symbol of that king. And shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. A lot of debate on the sons of Sheth here, but it seems as if that it should, Sheth should probably be translated as sons of tumult or uproar in our text. In other words, all those causing problems to God's king, he is going to rise up and he is going to put them down. Beloved, not only will the star and the scepter of Israel destroy Balak, the king of Moab, but he will destroy all the sons of uproar, all the nations that will one day rise up against him. I so look forward to digging into that when we hit Psalm 2 and we get a little picture of what the, the world is saying when the king is there and they are saying, let us cast his bonds far from us. We want nothing to do with this God. Psalm 2 says, the Lord laughs. I look forward to that sermon. Apostle John's revelation pictures the culmination of this prophecy like this. Thank you for being patient with me here. I'm on my last page of notes. It says this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Here we see that like the oracles of Numbers say, Yahweh is going to fight for his king. And as much as each one of these oracles is speaking about the present nature of, of, um, of Israel, who if, again, if we were to ever have the chance to spend time with, with uh, Joel Kramer, who started in this video, you can go to these spots, directly to these spots where he le- that you're looking over Israel. And you can see there in the narrative that you can't see to the end of them. And so they keep moving, and Balak keeps hoping that, that he is going to get a curse on Israel. It's so fun that you can go to these spots. But what we know is that even though the present was there, he moves very quickly into the future and blows right on by us and where we're at and looks to a time when Yahweh and his king will rule and reign forever. He will put his enemies under his feet. Beloved, we can learn a lot of things from these texts, but, we, but what we must not forget is that God, that what God has said, he will surely accomplish. Amen? 
Friends, we have spoken of a time in history that comes before us, a time in history that is beyond us. Where does that leave us? It leaves all humanity as enemies of God and in the need of his mercy, the good news, the gospel. God has promised in his word to punish sinners, all sin, everyone. I am included in that. You are included in that. Yet he has made a way of escape. And although your sin cries out against you, God has given away through his son, Christ Jesus, who comes, we're going to study, spend years looking at this offer of the kingdom that Jesus gives, right? And they deny that offer. And God, in his wisdom, puts Christ to death on you and my behalf, and my behalf, that whosoever would put their faith there, would recognize their, their, their sin and their desperate need to be forgiven by the God who is going to judge all people, will receive eternal life. And forever, listen, this is such an amazing thing, right? Even now, in your sinful, difficult, horrible states, just like me, when God looks at you, he does not see that. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter if you have put your faith in him. Friends, if you're in here this morning and you reside under God's wrath, please know that he will do as he said. He will judge sinners. We see after that final battle that God wins for the king who is, who is to come. The Bible says that God will resurrect every human who has ever lived. Those who have repented and put their faith in Christ will be found in the Lamb's book of life, and those who have not will be judged by the eternal king to eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Friends, I don't know where you're at, if you're stuck in patterns of sin. If you have never confessed your sin to Christ, I, I don't know. But this is what I do know, the answer. Recognize it. Tell Christ, tell God what he already knows. Cry out for mercy in the person of Christ, and you'll receive it. Amen. Friends, today we have seen that a star shall come from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. When we behold our God at his coming, we will see what eternal destiny we will receive. Amen. Pray. Father, thank you for these folks. I thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, even though it cuts and, and hurts, we need to be reminded that you are going to do what you are going to say. We come up with, you know, fanciful reasons for how we can get out of it or what we may even think of your coming. But, Lord, what we do know is that you're going to do what you said you were going to do, that you're going to return here and you are going to rule and you are going to reign. You were going to judge. Pray, God, that there would be no one in here this morning that would not cry out to you for mercy. We look forward to the day, Lord, if that be so, and this be their day, that we would spend eternity with you, reveling in your great love for us. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.